0: Bible and open up to the book of Esther. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. Uh, There are pew pew Bibles in the racks in front of you that you are welcome to use. So we are currently in a series on the Old Testament book of Esther. And there are at least two things that make this book unusual. The first is that there is no mention of God. That's highly unusual for a book of the Bible, right? We would expect for there to be some mention of God, maybe some appearance of God, but we have none of that in the book of Esther. And then the second thing that makes Esther unusual is that there's little commentary provided. And what I mean by that is that when it comes to the characters, the author doesn't necessarily say whether their actions in certain instances are moral or immoral you might say that God is hidden in this book. And for that reason, I believe that Esther is a really important text for us since God often seems and feels hidden from us in our lives, especially as people of faith uh, attempting to live out our faith in a secular world. Now, if you have not been with us, let me just give you a quick review to bring you up to speed because this morning we are looking at chapter four of Esther. In chapter one, we meet the king of Persia. He's really, really powerful. His wife, the queen, makes him angry in chapter one. She makes him angry because she refuses to present herself in public at a feast when the king calls for her. She's banished from the palace and a decree goes out throughout the empire warning wives against disobeying their husbands in this Manner. So we see the power, and the misuse of power on display uh, right away in chapter 1. In chapter 2, the king needs a new wife and queen, right? Because he sent his previous one away. And maybe by the time we get to chapter 2, which is four or five years later, he's feeling some regret about that. He's uh, at a, feeling vulnerable in life. At this point, Persia had been humiliated, defeated by Greece in a military campaign. So the king needs a new wife and queen. Beautiful women throughout the empire are abducted. That's what happens. They're abducted and forced into a several-month process. And the woman the king identifies throughout, at the end of this process as most beautiful and pleasing to him, he would choose that woman to become his wife and the queen. Esther, a Jewish woman, is chosen. Her cousin Mordecai foils a plot uh, against uh, the king. That is the end of chapter 2. Chapter 3 is the chapter that we looked at last week. A man named Haman uh, is elevated to basically be the king's right-hand man. And Mordecai, um, Esther's uh, cousin, refuses to bow down to Haman. Uh, He won't do it. Uh, He's given many opportunities, he refuses, He, he does not do it. And this makes Haman furious, he can't handle it. So he devises a plot, this escalates quickly, he devises a plot to destroy all the Jews in the Persian Empire. The king, unknowingly and unwittingly, agrees to this. So an edict is sent throughout the empire calling for the destruction, the genocide of all the Jews. And so chapter three uh, should leave us as readers. It definitely would have um, created this question for the original readers. Where is God in this story? Where is God uh, in the events, particularly of chapter three and where it leaves off? Will God protect his covenant people who are remaining, some of them, still in exile in Persia? Are they still a part of God's plan and purposes? Are they still his people? Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. And that guy went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city. These names are brutal throughout this book. Went out uh, into the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, And Mordecai told him all that had happened, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And that guy went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to that guy and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces now know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's take a moment to pray. Holy Spirit, take your word and penetrate our minds and our hearts, our very lives with it. Draw us into this narrative that even though, God, on the surface, you may seem hidden, you are here. Help us to see you. Help us to know you through this narrative. And we pray that you would apply it to us, that you would instruct us by it so that our lives might be changed and that we might live more faithfully as your people in light of it. And for those who are in our midst that don't believe your word, who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus, we pray that you would speak to them, that you would open them up to the truth of your word, and that they might enter your story for the first time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let's walk through this narrative together, beginning by looking at verses 1 through 3. Mordecai learns of the edict, and he becomes super emotional. We, we, we have to do our best to try to enter into the emotion of this narrative, because it's heavy, it's weighty. Imagine what it must have been like for someone like Mordecai, and for the other Jews who eventually become aware of this edict that essentially in 11 months was going to call for their destruction, their genocide, what would that be like? Imagine being a Jew living at that time, and imagine the emotions that you would be feeling. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we see from Mordecai right at the beginning of this narrative that he is overcome by emotion. He tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he goes into the midst of the city And we're told that he cries out with a loud cry. Mordecai's people, his fellow people, are in grave danger. They are in jeopardy due to his personal conflict with Haman. And we looked at this last week. We talked about it. This response from Haman, the guy who basically caused this edict to come about in the first place because he was so angry with Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him, and so he takes it into his own hands to devise a plan that would lead to the destruction of all the Jews, it was an incredible escalation of a personal conflict. Haman's response was way out of proportion to what was actually going on in his anger toward Mordecai. Mordecai's tearing his clothes and putting on sackcloth and ashes is an act of mourning, and lament. It was common during the ancient times. And after he goes out into the public square and cries out with a loud cry, he then goes to the king's gate, we're told. And no one, we get this detail, was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And then we learn that Jews, as they are becoming aware of this edict, They too are overcome with emotion. They mourn and grieve just as Mordecai is mourning and grieving. So, again, we need to feel the emotion of this scene. We need, uh, as best as we can, to try to put ourselves into the positions of these characters, beginning with Mordecai. You know, it could be that along with his just grief uh, and fear uh, of what is impending um, on his people, that maybe he was also feeling a degree of regret. Maybe he was struggling with regret, just thinking about, this is all my fault. In hindsight, I should have just bowed down to Mordecai, I should have, or I should have just bowed down to Haman. I should have given him what he wanted. We're not told that that's going through his mind, but it might be going through my mind if I were in that situation, Verses 4 through 11, Esther's young women and eunuchs come and tell her what is going on. And she, we're told, becomes deeply distressed as well. So she sends clothes for Mordecai, but he refuses to accept them. And at this point, she sends a eunuch to Mordecai to find out exactly what's going on. She wants to know all of the details. So eventually, word comes back to Esther with the details of what is happening. And included along with that is a copy of the edict, of the decree. And so Mordecai at this point requests that Esther go to the king and beg for a reversal. Because Mordecai knows that Esther is in a unique position as the queen, as the wife of the husband. She is in a position in which she could potentially go to the king and potentially have him reverse this decree. But what happens? She sends word back to Mordecai that there's little that she can do. No one is allowed to approach the king without a summons. And apparently, um, to do so would result in death. So you had to request the audience of the king and await an invitation. And it's clear that Esther uh, is under the impression that she will not have the opportunity to go into the presence of the king anytime soon. There were only seven men in the king's um, court who were permitted to enter the king's presence unannounced, and that was when he was not sleeping with a woman. Esther, uh, as I said, doesn't seem that she's going to be able to have access to his presence anytime soon. We're talking about the queen here. We're talking about technically his wife. This is pretty screwed up, right? Verses 12 through 17. Mordecai delivers a message. At this point, it's like, maybe these two should just kind of get together and talk about this instead of having these middlemen to go back and forth and exchange messages. But Mordecai delivers a message to Esther through the eunuch. And it basically says this, that you yourself as a Jew will not escape this if you choose to do nothing. If you keep silent, and this is an interesting uh, claim that Mordecai makes if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will come, but it will come from another place and then he adds this, you and your father 's house will perish we 'll come back to to what is going on there and what mordecai means and then a question is posed to Esther, could it be Could it be that you have come to the kingdom that you have Uh, found yourself in this position of queen for such a time as this. She replies to Mordecai and tells him to gather the Jews in Susa. She wants them to hold a three-day fast on her behalf, and she says that uh, she herself will also fast along with her young women. And she says after that time, she will go to the king, even though it is against the law. She says, if I perish... I perish. Mordecai does what Esther told him to do. I want to focus now on both Mordecai and Esther in this narrative, and I want to look specifically at both the authority and vulnerability that they each display in the narrative of chapter 4. And here's how I want to set this up. There's an author named Andy Crouch, and he wrote a book called Strong and Weak for... um, Some of you men who uh, came on the men's retreat last year, last May, uh, I basically taught content from this book. So this might, should, hopefully, if you're paying attention, uh, sound familiar to you. Uh, But this book by Andy Crouch, it's called Strong and Weak. He talks about the paradox of flourishing. And here's what he says. True flourishing requires two things that seem like they don't go together at all. Flourishing requires us to embrace both authority and vulnerability. He says, The journey of Christian discipleship is the pursuit of greater authority and greater vulnerability at the same time. The journey of Christian discipleship is the pursuit of greater authority and greater power at the same time. Here's how he defines authority. The capacity for meaningful action capacity for meaningful action. And here's how he defines vulnerability, exposure to meaningful risk. Exposure to meaningful risk. Let's look in at the authority that both Mordecai and Esther have and how they use that authority. Mordecai's authority, his capacity for meaningful action comes through his relationship to Esther. Because of his relationship Being related to her, they are cousins. He is the only person who can influence Esther and convince her to go to the king. He's the only one. And so he has authority as a result. And as we said, this authority simply comes to him by extension of being related to Esther, who finds herself in the position of queen. Esther's authority, her capacity for meaningful action, comes through her position. She's the queen, the only person who most likely can influence the king and convince him to reverse this decree that has been issued. What authority has God given you? What authority has God given you? It could be that you pursued the authority that you have. And remember, the definition of authority is the capacity for meaningful action. It could be that you pursued the authority that you have. Maybe you went to school to gain that authority, or maybe you maneuvered through life in certain ways to gain the authority that you have. Or maybe the authority was just simply given to you. Uh, Maybe it comes to you by virtue of being a parent or Maybe you were placed into a role that you didn't ask for, but you find yourself in it, and so, therefore, you have a certain level of authority. It may even be that you resisted the authority that you have. It could be that you wish that you didn't have it. Whatever the case might be, however we have come upon our authority, we have to be aware of the authority that we have. We can't be naive about it, and I would um, suggest that each and every one of us in this place this morning has some degree of authority. Could have been authority that you pursued, could have been authority that was given to you, could have even been authority that you resisted, but in some way, shape, or form, you have a degree of authority in your life. What is that authority? Authority. We have to be aware of it. The reason that we have to be aware of it is because we are meant by God to use our authority for the purposes of love. We're meant by God to use our authority uh, for the purposes of love. We're meant to use our authority, in other words, for the common good. And when we are naive about our authority, when we are unaware of the authority that we have, we still exercise that authority. But the danger is, if we're unaware, if we're naive about it, is that we exercise that authority in a way in which we do not love others. We exercise that authority in which we possibly misuse others. Let's talk about vulnerability now. Andy Crouch, in that book, Strong and Weak, says, The vulnerability that leads to flourishing requires risk, which is the possibility of loss. The chance that when we act, we will lose something we value. Vulnerability is more than just personal and emotional transparency. It is exposing yourself to risk, to the point of loss. This is what love requires. Mordecai. Mordecai's vulnerability... His exposure to meaningful risk is seen through his public lament. Remember, um, as he becomes aware of this decree, when he becomes aware of the potential destruction of himself and his people, he immediately grieves, he mourns. He's full of emotion. But this is, if you think about it, a dangerous time to publicly draw attention to one's Jewish identity, don't you think? I mean, after all, a decree has just went out that um several months from that time, all its it's a requirement, it's a command, it must happen all the destro- all the Jews must be destroyed, and Mordecai a Jew reacts to this so strongly, he's overcome with emotion, and so he's lamenting out in public, essentially drawing attention to his Jewish identity. And you can't help but to realize that this is instinctual for Mordecai. How else could he respond, right? How else could he act? It's the only way to respond. Mordecai exposes himself to risk because he exposes himself as a Jew publicly. He demonstrates public vulnerability. I want to talk about lament for a few moments, Lament is a spiritual practice. Lament is a spiritual practice. Lament is a necessary and healthy practice in the economy of God's kingdom. Why is that? Why would we want to lament? Why would we want to create space in our lives to individually lament? Why would we want to create space in our corporate lives as God's people to lament? Shouldn't we focus on what there is to celebrate? We should. But sometimes, um, I, I think this comes from the culture, but sometimes I think it comes from the church as well, is that we can move to celebration far too quickly. Lament is a healthy practice. It's a spiritual practice. And the reason that is, is because lament is a godly response to the reality that things in God's world are not the way they are supposed to be. As we look out out at our world, um, we could uh, identify a long list, a a never-ending list of all the ways in which we would say that God's world is not functioning and operating the way that he intended And there are different ways to respond to that, and there are different ways that we do respond to that. For some of us, we feel it deeply. We really do. We feel it deeply. We allow ourselves to feel the depth of the pain and the suffering of the world. But for some of us, we numb ourselves to it because we don't want to feel. We're afraid of feeling, and so we avoid feeling. We Keep ourselves busy. Um, we distract ourselves so that we don't have to dwell on or remember the things that are worth lamenting in life. Or maybe we have a happy-go-lucky attitude in which we say, "Oh, yes, those things are not the way they're supposed to be, but if we dwell on those things too much, we'll become cynical and all of this. and so let's just sell it. let's identify the good things and celebrate them. Cynicism is a danger, and lament is not the act of dwelling on the brokenness of the world. Lament is the act of creating space for a time in order to feel the brokenness of the world deeply, both individually and corporately. The question is really this, are we willing to feel on behalf of others? Are we willing to feel on behalf of others or do we just simply numb ourselves to the pain of others? Again, we have to talk about emotion in this narrative because there is a weightiness to the emotion here in chapter 4. There is lots of feeling going on. Mordecai and his fellow Jews lament. And yes, we may say, Uh, As I said, what else would they do? How else would they act? But the question still exists for us. Are we creating space in our lives to lament and to feel deeply the brokenness of life? Esther's vulnerability, her exposure to meaningful risk, is seen in the decision that she faces about whether or not to go to the king to plead with him to reverse this decree. Uh, Mike Cosper is a um, theologian who uh, has written a book on Esther, and he says that verse 14 is the most important sentence in the book of Esther. He argues that it's the hinge of the story. Verse 14 says, for if you keep silent at this time, this is Uh, A message that Mordecai wants to be delivered to Esther. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's interesting here because Mordecai has lamented, he is still lamenting, but he also is exercising faith. There's confidence uh, coming from Mordecai here in this message that he has for Esther. And that confidence is, is that somehow he has the faith to believe, the confidence to believe that God will preserve his people. And then we get this line about where where he says that um, if you choose not to act on this, um, deliverance will rise from another place. He's confident that God will preserve his people, but you and your father's house will perish. What does Mordecai mean by that? He's telling Esther that her spiritual identity will be dead. It will be dead if she refuses to to act. It will have died when her father died years before. This is a defining moment in Esther's life. She is at a crossroads. What identity will she choose? Will Esther respond by faith or not? In last week's uh, chapter, chapter three, we, we talked a little bit about the position that Jews in exile faced in Persia. And it was similar to what the Jewish exiles felt in Babylon before that. And the various temptations uh, could be that on the one hand, there's a temptation to isolate, to have a fortress mentality, to basically say, we are in a foreign land. We don't want to be corrupted and polluted by these people and the idols they worship. And Um, the ways in which they live that are contrary to God's good purposes. So we're going to simply isolate ourselves from them. We're going to build a fortress, so to speak, and we're going to do everything in our power to avoid interacting with the culture around us. That's one option. Another option we could say is to accommodate, to say that the pressure is just too great. It's so hard Uh, living in a a culture in which does not share our values, does not promote our identity. And so forget it. Let's just uh, accommodate. Let's become like the culture. Let's lose our distinctiveness. That's one option. Neither of those are the biblical options. And I talked about this last week. I I think the the, uh, perfect example of this is the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, When the Jews were in exile in Babylon, he writes a letter to them. And he's really seeking to address this very thing. And his uh, alternative path, his way that he uh, places before them is this, to put down roots, to live in the midst of this culture, to pray. Don't lose your faith. Don't lose your distinctiveness. Pray and pray on behalf of the culture. Seek the good of the culture because as the culture prospers, you too will prosper. So this is the the situation in which people like Mordecai and Esther found themselves. And, you know, we've drawn attention to this um, throughout this series so far. God is hidden. There's been no mention of God. There's been no mention of faith. There's been no mention of spirituality. It sure seems like Mordecai and Esther are just simply going along with the flow. Breezing through life to some degree. Uh, acclimating, accommodating to the culture around them, becoming just like the culture. And Esther's now faced with a decision. Which identity will she choose? Will she choose her Persian uh, identity, an identity that in this moment, uh, given the crisis that has emerged, would protect her, would save her, would make her feel feel comfortable, and that would ultimately keep her safe from risk. Will she choose that identity, or will she choose her Jewish identity? An identity rooted in faith. An identity rooted in the distinctiveness of who God is and who He desires for His people to be. This is the decision that she's facing. This is the crossroads at which she finds herself. And this is why Mordecai says that if you choose the cultural identity over the spiritual identity, you will die with your father. In other words, the spiritual identity of your family's heritage will have been dead with your father because you no longer are living it out and owning it yourself. I want you to think about something else going on here because this is what really, I I think, highlights the tension of the narrative and uh, highlights the significance of the decision that Esther has before her. Up to this point in the book, in the story of Esther, she has been passive. Because remember, she was abducted uh, from out of the Persian Empire and brought into the king's palace, forced into this beauty contest, uh, as we've called it a, a few times, and eventually chosen to be king. She did not choose any of that. She did not pursue any of that. In other words, she did not pursue the authority that she now has. She's been passive all along, and now she is faced with a decision. Will she take responsibility? Will she accept responsibility for the life That God has given her. Is Esther willing to be an agent through whom God can use to fulfill his purposes, even though it's not the life that Esther would have chosen? It's an identity crisis for Esther, and some of you feel this, obviously not in the same way as Esther did, but you feel the tension of being caught in between two worlds. It's a tension that we can relate to as we seek to live as God's people in a culture that does not share our values, a culture in which does not promote what we believe and what we prioritize. In order for Esther to act, she will have to reveal her Jewish identity. She will have to reveal that she is a woman of faith, if that's her choice. Karen Jobes, who I've quoted uh, multiple times uh, throughout the series, uh, teaches at Westminster Seminary and has written a commentary on Esther. She says this, it's not a choice between Esther's delivering the Jews or God's delivering them. Uh, She's speaking specifically to Mordecai's confidence, that statement that he makes, it will arise from another place. She says, rather, it is a question of what human agency God will use to deliver the Jews since they have no king. Mordecai's point is that the Jews will be delivered somehow, but that Esther's doom is certain if she fails to act. In other words, Esther's life is in jeopardy either way. If she chooses the faith identity and commits to going into the presence of the king, pleading with him to reverse the decree, it's possible she will be killed, but if she does nothing, it's possible she will be killed as well when her Jewish identity becomes known. Is Mordecai threatening her? We don't know. This is, uh, this is the place in chapter 4 in which the lack of commentary is frustrating. It would be uh, really nice to know what was going on in Mordecai's head. Is he threatening Esther? Is he basically saying, if you choose not to act, I'll tell everybody you're a Jew? We don't know. We don't know if he's basically implying that he will throw her under the bus. But her options are plain and simple. Death or death? Not great options, right? Death by sacrifice or death by numbness? Death by sacrifice or death by numbness, those are Esther's options. Brene Brown is a research professor, um, and we talked about this quote in the membership class yesterday. She says, you either walk inside your story and own it, or you stand outside your story and hustle for your worthiness. You either walk inside your story and own it, or you stand outside your story and hustle for your worthiness. This is another way of framing Esther's situation, the decision that she has. Will she take ownership of her story? Will she step into it, stand inside of it, and own it? Or is she going to stand outside of it, choose the path of numbness, choose the path of not really feeling, and then having to hustle for her worthiness by proving uh, her uh, importance or her worth or value in other ways in life? Esther's ultimate response uh, gives us her answer. It gives us her answer to uh, the decision that she makes. And it leads us to the first really explicitly religious or spiritual moment in the book of Esther. She says to Mordecai, "'Gather all the Jews in Susa, bring them together so that they might fast for three days,' I will do the same, and after, I will go into the presence of the king. If I perish, I perish. Esther 4.3, I want to um, read that for you um, real quick, or at least draw your attention back to it, um, because I'm about to make a connection for you. Esther 4.3, it says, There was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Now, Karen Jobes, the commentator that I just quoted a few minutes ago, she points out that the Hebrew phrase here is also used in Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Joel is one of the minor prophets, and she makes the connection that this exact sentence structure in Hebrew, these exact words together, there's only two places in which they appear in the same way like this. It's here in Esther 4.3 and Joel 2.12. And she argues that it forms a link between Esther and Joel. And so the author of Esther is telling us this episode of the story using an echo of Joel 2. And if this is true, if this is intentional, the author is assuming that the readers are familiar enough with Joel's words to recognize and interpret Esther 4 in light of Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, verse 12 says this, "'Yet even now,' declares the Lord," Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And after that, what Joel uh, 2.13 says is important as well. It goes on, And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If Karen Jobs is correct about this, this is an opportunity to turn to God. It's an opportunity to repent. That word repent is a biblical word that means to turn away from. But when we turn away from, we always are turning to something else. And so this is an opportunity for Esther, for Mordecai, to turn away from living for self and to turn to God and living for him. It's an invitation to turn in repentance. Esther's coming into the kingdom A path that she would not have chosen, a life that she would not have chosen, was for such a time as this, the means by which God's people might turn and receive his mercy. And by calling for this spiritual practice of fasting, she identifies herself with God's people. Her her choice is made clear. She has decided. And she herself, in effect, is responding to the call of repentance. Fasting. Fasting is an unusual spiritual practice or discipline, isn't it? Have you ever fasted? It's weird. You're choosing to refrain from something. Um, Often it's food, but it's not always food. Uh, You could uh, choose to fast from other things as well. But the point of fasting is to put us in touch with our need. So, for example, if you're fasting from food, there comes a time in which you start to feel your hunger. You start to feel your very real and physical need. It increases our awareness because if you've ever fasted, you know that you initially start to feel that hunger and then it goes on and then it goes on and as it goes on, your awareness of it is increasing. It's heightening, right? Fasting also is meant to increase our awareness of God's presence. You see, we don't just fast from something for the sake of it. We fast for something to especially focus on God and who he is in a concentrated way. Fasting creates an opportunity for us to slow down and recognize that we need God to be God in our lives because we can't control or fix as much as we would like to think. So Esther calls for spiritual practice. She realizes that, wow, I have just exposed myself to meaningful risk. And she knows that she can't go through with this in her own strength and power. She knows that she needs the support of her fellow Jews. And ultimately, they need to cry out to God and plead with him to act on their behalf. Esther is owning God's story. Esther is indwelling God's story. She's throwing herself at the mercy of God. If I perish, I perish. But this is a path of action for her. She is no longer passive. She is no longer, I mean, let's just say that she did. I'm sure that she did. She is no longer looking back on her life and mourning it um, every step of the way and saying, this isn't fair. It's not what I've chosen. I shouldn't be in this situation She is stepping into her story. She's standing inside of it. She's owning it within the context of God's story. How are you feeling vulnerability? Right now, as you sit here, how are you feeling vulnerability? Maybe you avoid authority as much as possible because you fear meaningful risk. Perhaps you despise the authority that you have currently because of the meaningful risk it exposes you to. Or maybe you just simply um, do whatever you can in your strength and power to avoid authority and ever um, being put into places or positions where you would have to exercise authority. If that is the case, you are standing outside of your story. You are a bystander to your own life story. You're an outsider. All because of an unwillingness to feel. And that really brings us to the end here, brings us full circle. The passage begins with deep feeling, deep lament, and it ends with deep feeling as well as both Mordecai and Esther in their own unique and different ways move forward by faith. But as they move forward by faith, that faith is wrapped up in emotion. They have both made decisions to feel on behalf of others. This is why working through our, our stories is so critical. Because for many of us, we, have not, we've, we, we haven't wanted to expose ourselves to the meaningful risk of actually working through and reflecting on our stories, our life stories, and what has happened to us. But here's the deal life continues to happen. And your story and then your uh, lack of reflection on it has shaped you and is shaping you and you have authority. And so the authority that you exercise is shaped by that and you are completely, most likely unaware of it. But when we do the hard work of standing inside of our story and processing the things that have happened to us, the things that we have done, it creates an opportunity for us to get in touch with who we are, who we long to be, and to also begin to be uh, willing to feel the pain of our story, the emotion of our story, and to grab hold of it and to expose ourselves to meaningful risk on behalf of others. To act courageously, because that's what Esther and Mordecai do here in this narrative, to act courageously on behalf of others in a secular world in particular where it just seems like God is hidden, we must be a deeply formed people. And this is why these spiritual practices that we see both Mordecai in lament and Esther in fasting turn to, spiritual practices are so key for us because they are some of the means that God has given us to work through our story, to slow down in prayer and reflection, to slow down to feel our need for God. Because without this, we have no power within ourselves to act courageously and love others. But as we finish, let me say this. We are not just simply holding Esther and Mordecai up as the perfect examples, the heroes, because they're not, right? They've stumbled along all throughout this book. They're going to continue to stumble along. And they've even stumbled upon faith in many ways here. It's just like us. And the encouragement of this story is that God can use ordinary people like Esther and Mordecai because that's what they are. We, we, because they're in the Bible, we elevate them and say they had unbelievable faith. No, they didn't. They didn't. For so many years, uh, like for Esther, um, for example, she chose the cultural identity over the spiritual identity and was faced with this crisis where she actually had to think through which will I choose. There were ordinary people, just like us, stumbling through life, trying to figure faith out. God uses people even like that. In other words, God uses people even like you and me. To quote Mike Cosper again, the only real option is to see the dark wood and enter it. The only way out of suffering is through it. We have to open ourselves to the possibilities of pain, failure, and heartache if we want to experience the goodness of joy, thriving, belonging, and redemption. Let's turn our eyes on Jesus. Jesus had the most authority, the greatest capacity for meaningful action. He also experienced intense vulnerability, the weightiest exposure that we could imagine to meaningful risk. He felt the risk. He felt the vulnerability. Remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried out, Father, if it be your will, please take this cup from me. What did Jesus choose? Jesus saw the dark wood, and yet he chose to enter it. He walked through suffering on our behalf. His sacrifice for us makes us secure so we can expose ourselves to meaningful risk for the common good. And so as we follow Jesus, let's, yes, look to his example of what he did for us, but even more than that, let us receive what he did for us because that is something that is much deeper than simply looking at the example of Jesus and say, that is uh, the model example. I too am going to seek to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. You can't do that, and that's not enough. Rather, what we want to do is by faith, by re- in relationship with Jesus, to receive what he has done for us, to recognize that it was for me. He walked through suffering. He exposed himself to risk. He laid down his life for me so that I might made, be made free, so that I might be made home with God by faith, so that I might have life and I might actually, by his power and grace, be willing to expose myself to risk and lay myself down in love for others for the common good. Let's pray to Jesus now. Jesus, thank you for exposing yourself to meaningful risk on our behalf. We pray that that work that you have done for us would penetrate us, that it would transform and change us from the inside out. And we pray that you would grant us the faith, the courage, the strength, the vulnerability to expose ourselves to meaningful risk. As we stand inside our story within the context of your story, and serve and love the world around us, even when it is not repaid to us, even when it is hard, even when we feel the pressure to choose a cultural identity over a spiritual identity. We pray that you would continually bring us back to what you have done for us so that we might be reminded that we are safe and secure as your sons and daughters, as your children. And we have been called by you and empowered by your spirit to represent you to the world around us. Give us the power, give us the courage, give us the love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.